Well, as I said, we had a great day yesterday here for the harvest party. Uh, 37 new families checked in that haven't been here before. 86 new children. And uh, so connections made that we can invite uh, people to and become a part of. And that's that's a significant, uh, I think, step forward from past events. Uh, and so we're, we're glad to all of those who have invited others and shared the news about what we're doing here. I want to say thanks to Courtney uh, Simmons for her work with Children's Ministries and, and uh, especially checking people in there yesterday. And Eric uh, Huffman, who stepped into the outreach ministries role and has helped out in many ways. And then also the Wood family, who always lead that harvest party every year, Inga and, and the game are here throughout the week setting up, uh, getting everything ready, making sure everything's in place, getting all of the volunteers and the candy, candy and candy that uh, flows from here. Um, great job, everyone. Wonderful day. I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy Chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 today. And I'm going to break in the new projectors here, I hope, with a little PowerPoint. And so we can just, all right, that's all we need for now. Uh, but every now and then I'll use a PowerPoint outline. Today would be a good day for it. Let me read to you first our text from 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, their desire to marry, I'm sorry, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman, woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them 
Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Lord, I pray as we look at these instructions, you would help us understand what uh, significance there is for us today in the church today. Um, we thank you for the way you have put us together uh, as a family, as the body of Christ. And I pray that you would help us see the ways in which we need to care for one another in obedience to your word. Amen. This past week, um, Rachel and I went shopping and I was able to buy a new coat. I don't do that very often, but I bought a new coat. I didn't, I don't need it yet. It's been so warm out. But then it made me remember that uh, when we were having our 150th anniversary here as a church, I remember going through all sorts of historical records and archives and, uh, and documents from years past. And I found a letter that was from one of the Free Methodist bishops written to the leaders of this church. And I can't remember what decade it was from, but there was a building project going on here at the church. And the bishop was writing to encourage the leaders in how they should consider the design of this building. And the one thing this bishop emphasized in his letter that I thought was kind of interesting was you've got to have coat rooms. Coat rooms are so important. And I like he spent half the letter explaining the importance of a coat room. And it's funny because, you know, we did put a coat room in this newer section 20 plus years ago when it was built. And we don't use it for coats hardly at all. I mean, maybe a few people will hang a coat up in there, but it's mostly storage. And we used to have a coat rack in the back, but we took it down because it became a, a lost and found. It, 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 it's just a, a, a changing times. People don't use coat racks, apparently, the way they did 30, 40 years ago whenever this letter was written. Um, but why would I say that? What am I go where am I going with this? Well, imagine had Paul been writing to Timothy about the construction of the church building in Ephesus. And he had said to him at that time, you know, it's really important to have coat rooms to welcome your guests. Uh, because they need a place to hang their coat. And imagine if that had been written into this letter to Timothy, and we had read it today, and then we looked at it and said, well, I guess we have to have coat rooms, because Paul wrote that to Timothy as an instruction for the church. But what if we were in Florida? Would we still have to have coat rooms? You know, what if we lived in a climate that where nobody wore a coat? Well, obviously, you know, I hope you see the point. The point is, why would that instruction be given? Why did the bishop write to the leaders of this church about the importance of coat rooms? It wasn't because you have to have a coat room. It was because you want a place that's welcoming and inviting. You want a place that people can come and, and, and feel like they can be a part of. And you know, maybe that was the way it was 40 years ago, and maybe it's not that way today. But what's the principle? What's the truth? The truth is, open your doors, welcome people in, give them a place to sit and, and to feel connected. That's the principle. And so sometimes as we read these letters um, that Paul has written to specific people and situations, there are, might be instructions in there where you say, how does that apply today? And maybe if you're a church in, in Florida, you don't need the coat room, but you still need the truth, which is to welcome. And, and, and in this case, maybe we don't need the specific detail of how Paul was applying the instruction to Timothy in that time or place, but we still need the principle. We need the truth to caring for one another. And so these are instructions for the church. If your Bible is like mine, it's got a heading there that says that instructions for the church. 
But I'm going to call this message today Instructions for the Church Today. Instructions for the Church Today. Um, down here. There we go. Because there's, there's some things that are definitely carrying over applicationally from then to now, but there's some ways in which there are principles that we just need to apply. So let's begin uh, with principle number one. Here's the first instruction that, that we get from these, uh, these 16 verses that we just looked at. Oh, sorry. Just put it up there. Is this clicker working? It's working. Okay, good. Lead with honor and with purity. This is going to be our first instruction for the church today. And the principle here is this. Leaders of the church are to treat members of the church as if they were family. Leaders of the church are to treat members of the church as if they were family. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So Timothy has just been told in chapter 4 that he has authority. He says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believer in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. So, so Timothy is to be encouraged to stand up and to take uh, authority, even though he might be young. But then Paul turns right around here in the first part of chapter 5 and warns Timothy and says, with that authority, you've got to be careful. With authority comes power, and with power comes the potential for abuse. There's, there's something you need to be careful of here. You want to be careful not to disrespect those who are older than you. You want to be careful not to take advantage of those who might be younger than you. So these are some instructions to Timothy and other leaders to lead with honor and with purity. He says there in verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now that word for older man is the same word we use to translate elder. So earlier in the book, he's talking about elders, and it's a particular office. It's a position within the church. Here he's using the same word, but now he's referring to those who are older. It's the same word, but a slightly different context. This, in this case, it's not somebody who has the position of elder, but somebody who has, um, and is an elder by age. And they are to be respected. Um, a, a, a fun way to kind of describe this would be to say that I am an elder because I am a pastor. I've been ordained into that position as an elder in the church. My dad is also an elder because he's my father and he's been around a while and he's a respected leader. So I am my dad's elder and my dad is my elder. Um, just different ways of applying the same word, elder. But the idea here is that as a, as a leader, if I have to challenge or correct another leader, I need to do it with respect, like, like they were my own father or my own mother. Because we are a family. I shouldn't uh, uh, rebuke harshly or in a dishonorable way. And as leaders, that's how we are to treat one another. And then um, the same is true for, for those who are younger. Speaking of, of younger women, or um, they're, they're to be treated as sisters, he says in verse 2. 
is treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so there's this emphasis here on the fact that as a leader with authority, with power, there is the potential for abuse. There is a potential to take advantage. And this is a terrible thing. We read in the news occasionally about a pastor or a priest who uh, commits some form of terrible abuse against a younger person in the church. And we shudder at that, at the evil and the harm that that causes. Jesus saved his strongest condemnation for those who would hurt the vulnerable and the weak. He says it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to have him thrown into the heart of the sea. Um, it's a terrible, terrible thing when a leader abuses a power, takes advantage of someone who is weak. And so the challenge to leaders is to lead with honor and with purity by looking at others as if they were family, to, to those who are older as if they were your parents, to those who are younger as if they were a sister or a brother, to, to see them with, with those eyes of wanting to protect and to nurture and to care for, never to take advantage of or to abuse. Abuse is always wrong in any form, whether it's sexual, emotional, spiritual, financial, or anything else. It happens when one person uses their, their leverage over another in a way that could cause harm. And maybe that power comes through physical strength or maybe it's through uh, the ability to verbally attack somebody or maybe it's relational blackmail or emotional manipulation. However it comes, it's always wrong. And leaders especially must beware of that position that they have and the importance of treating others um, with care and respect and purity. And this certainly isn't just true in the church. It's true in the workplace. It's true uh, in school settings. It's true if in families. But it's absolutely true in the church. And, you know, I think some people might say, oh, well, you know, we're just kidding around or we're just uh, having fun or joking. It's never fun when there's abuse, when there's somebody using power against another. Um, I think if you want to know what, what the Bible standard is, it's very clear. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. I'm sorry, 3 to 5. Uh, spell it out exactly. Um, Paul says there, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I think that's pretty clear. The NIV translated it as, let there not be even a hint of sexual immorality. This is not a joking matter. This is very serious. And particularly when somebody is in leadership or in any position of authority, they must honor and respect everyone that they lead with all purity. I think it's good to note that Paul was ahead of his time in many ways with this. 
Certainly, um, speaking up for those who were vulnerable was not a, a big thing in the first century. But Paul makes important notice of this, uh, and he is ahead of his time. And yet it's a timely word for today, as it continues to be a problem that plagues our society. So lead with honor and with purity. Second, provide for relatives and members of your own household. Provide for relatives and members of your own household. Um, the principle is this, the failure to care for relatives and members of one's own household is a denial of the faith. To reject the care of your family is to reject God. And we see this in verses 4 and 8. So look first at verse 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now we're going to get to widows in a moment. Uh, but I think I want to highlight here just first the point being made here that um, if there are those within the family of a widow who can care for that widow, it's their responsibility first to care for her. And it's, it's an interesting little note, he says, there to make some return to their parents. As parents, you know, you pour in and pour in and pour into the lives of your children. And Paul is saying, you know what, children, make some return. Care for those who raised you. And then in verse 8, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a pretty strong rebuke. That's a pretty serious challenge to make sure that we care for members of our own household, to care for our family. It's a reminder that, the, that family is foundational and that caring for our family is foundational to our faith. That God has called us to live together in families. It's part of our identity as followers of Jesus to care for those that God has placed us in family with. And maybe you feel like that's natural, like it's just something we, a given, we should care for those of our own family. But you know what? It, it, it's not always the case. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And within families, it's sometimes maybe easier to, to just go off and serve somebody else for two hours instead of taking the time to day in and day out care for the members of your own family. Because, you know, within families, there's all kinds of complicated dynamics, aren't there? All sorts of uh, times in which you might feel like you've been taken advantage of, or maybe there's some false assumptions being made. Maybe you're presuming on one another in some way, and communication breaks down, and maybe expectations aren't realistic. Maybe resentment sets in. There are all a whole host of problems. We call it dysfunctions now, but it's really just sin that uh, gets tangled up within families and causes people not to care for one another as they should. And in my role as a pastor, I kind of get a front row seat sometimes to some of this, the bad as well as the good. Because I often see great examples of people who maybe haven't been, uh, haven't had that great of an experience growing up. Maybe their parents weren't very good parents, but they nonetheless devote themselves to caring for them in their times of need. And so um, my challenge to you would be to this, be this, consider your own situation. 
Consider your relatives, your own household. Are there needs that, that you need to meet? Are there ways that you can help serve one another? Paul's challenge is very clear. That's our priority, first off. And the church is there to help when the family can't meet the need. But Paul is saying, I don't want the church to have to pick up the slack if the family's dropping the ball. So the challenge first is to each of us to care for our families. So, so where are there ways in which maybe you need to just have a tough conversation and, or maybe you need to apologize. Maybe the, some of the walls need to come down first and then just say, hey, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry I haven't been there, but I want to be. How can I help? Or maybe you just need to say, hey, you know, I need some help here. Could you assist me with such and such? It's just, it's just important to have those conversations. So the second truth, provide for relatives and members of your own household. Number three, pay special attention to those who have genuine needs in the church. Pay special attention to those who have genuine needs in the church. First verse three, and I know I'm kind of skipping around with these points, but in some ways, Paul's explanations seem a bit scattered as well. So I'm trying to just organize it into some, some, some key thoughts here. So first, verse 3. Honor uh, widows who are truly widows. And then verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Here the emphasis, again, is on the importance of the church meeting the genuine needs of those who have uh, those needs. Uh, the principle is the responsibility of the church to care for those with genuine needs, and particularly widows who have no other family. Paul has a lot to say here about widows. I thought it fitting that the scripture Craig read this morning from Isaiah chapter 1 mentions this important truth, to care for the fatherless and the widows. If you read through the Bible with an eye to the widow, you'll find that it's a theme throughout the entire uh, book, from beginning to end. Whether it's the story of Ruth and Naomi being cared for by Boaz and others, or the, the laws that God laid down through Moses, or the instructions given through the prophets, or the example of, of Elijah and Elisha, or the life of Jesus and all the widows that he was just drawn to, to serve. Uh, the, the ministry of, of two widows, the care for those who are vulnerable and in need, is, is central to what the Bible calls us to be and to do. It's all throughout the scripture. And this is in contrast to, to pagan cultures uh, because you just don't find that in, in, in many other uh, societies or, or, or teachings. And yet we want to make sure that we care for those who are in need. And our care is not necessarily to be limited to widows. I think widows, I think, capture best the, the, the perspective of those who might be vulnerable and in need. But there are widowers who are sometimes in need. Um, I appreciate the work my son Henry's done here in the last couple of years. There's a couple guys in our neighborhood who, who don't have family to help, and so he's been over there working in their yard. Um, there are people who maybe have other reasons for the, uh, the fact that they need some help. Maybe there's a, 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 a disability or a handicap of some kind. And there are ways that we as a church need to step up and help 
and serve. Sometimes this is done formally. We have our membership care committee, and it's our task as a committee to try and keep uh, aware of needs that are out there. But there are things that we might not notice or be aware of. And there's then the informal ways in which care is placed and, and help is given to others. Uh, consider, though, how you as part of the church can serve someone else who might have a need. Is there somebody who is vulnerable, somebody who, who needs a hand? This is a perfect time of year to go rake somebody's leaves, to go rake some leaves, or to take a hot meal, or help winterize a home. Maybe somebody needs transportation, need help with a ride to, to doctor's appointments, or maybe getting groceries, or assisting with some other kind of repair. This is where the body of Christ is at its greatest, when we can help one another and serve and meet needs within the church. So pay special attention to those who have genuine needs in the church. And then finally, number four, enlist certain widows into special ministries. Enlist certain widows in special ministry. Now, this is the most, uh, what should I say? challenging part of the text because uh, well let me just just read it to you again because if I if you were listening as I read begin earlier you're probably kind of scratching your head saying what is he talking about here and so I'm first going to read verses five through seven once more it says she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if any, um, uh, yeah, so that's five through seven. And then verses nine through 15, it goes into this lengthier description of, of the virtues of some of these virgins, uh, virgins, widows, virtues of the widows who are enlisted or enrolled into a special uh, ministry. It says, verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Uh, it speaks of her hospitality. It speaks of her caring for the saints, for the afflicted, devoting herself to good works, but refuse to enroll younger widows, it says because they may be drawn away in getting to get married. Now, is he saying there's something wrong with them getting married? Well, no. So this has caused a lot of confusion for interpreters. And here again, I kind of come back to that analogy of the coat room. We're listening to one side of this conversation and we're looking at it 2,000 years later, trying to figure out what was going on here. But let's not miss the truth. Let's not miss the principle. And here's the key idea. We want to see certain widows who are qualified enlisted in special ways to serve in the church. And, and I think the best explanation I have found for this is in a commentary by Robert Black. And he writes about how in the second century, there was actually a special order of widows that was established. And there's historical records of this, that they were uh, a group of women um, who were actually part of this special group. And they served the church in special ways, through prayer, through service, through other ministries. And, and, and the thought here is that that may have had its origin with what Paul is teaching here. 
So let me try to explain it this way. It's not that only women who meet all these criteria are the ones who are to be cared for, but that these are the ones who are to be called into a special role in ministry, a special order of widows to serve the church in a unique way. They are the ones who are over 60. They have uh, a reputa good reputation. They show hospitality. They care for the afflicted. They're devoted to good works. And you know, I want to tell you, I see firsthand how true it is that there are so many widows in the church who are frontline, the leading servants within the congregation, special ministries, special callings, whether, in it, whether it be prayer, whether it be teaching, whether it be serving others, whether it be uh, all sorts of, of ways. God has, I believe, specially gifted some who might be widows or widowers to serve in unique ways. And so I can understand why in ancient times a special order was maybe formed of those who could serve in this way. And I think it's important for us as a church to always think about that and the ways in which God calls us in our, in our maybe from what the world sees as weakness, God sees as strength. And there are many who are blessed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve, even in, in broken or difficult situations. And I appreciate those in this church who meet those uh, criteria. So I want to uh, finish with an example of this. Um, about 10 years ago or so when I was in Kenya, I got to go a couple of times to teach. And each time I was there, I worked with uh, Vicki Reinen and Nettie Dingili, who um, started a ministry in Kenya uh, for women called uh, Tumeni Women Kenya. And the goal of this ministry was to serve primarily widows, but others who might also have need. And it was not just to give handouts it was not just to try and uh, be a charity sort of thing, but it was to empower these women uh, and to uh, give them loans to help empower them for work and livelihood as well as ministry. I want to just share one story with you from that uh, ministry, Too Many uh, Women Kenya. And I've got some pictures up there for you. Um, but Vicki Reinen, one of the founders of the ministry, shares this story about a woman named Lenser Oma uh, from Western Kenya. She says, Lenser Oma, still in her 20s, has faced more challenges than many of us will face in a lifetime. She had been given in marriage to a man who already had two wives. She is now a widow with four children to provide for and raise. Like others in her situation, Lenser faced the risk of being inherited by her husband's family and falling into the enslaving culture of having others dictate what she could or could not do. Instead, Lenser chose to defy the odds by seeking opportunities through Tumeni Women Kenya. And Tumeni is the Swahili word for hope. By choosing to be trained as a seamstress, she's giving herself power to say no to self-pity and yes to who God made her to be. Lenser clings to verses like Galatians 3, 28 and 29 and Colossians 3, 11 that declare in Christ there is no longer any distinction. In Christ, we are all one. She knows she is a child of God who is worthy of his mercy, love and deliverance. 
She understands God sees her in a much better light than those within her own culture. So I think that's a great example of a ministry that calls widows in particular to step forward and to empower them and to encourage in, in, in ministry and in livelihood because of what God has uniquely gifted and prepared them for. Oftentimes it might seem like life has put you in a dead end where there's not an opportunity or a way to go, but God is all about redeeming us, our hearts, our lives, our situations, our futures. And it's cool to see the way God does that through the church. And so let's be able to work together and uh, to see God work in the midst of our brokenness. So just to recap, lead with honor and purity, provide for relatives and members of your own household, pay special attention to those who have genuine needs in the church and enlist certain widows special ministry. God, thank you for these instructions for us today. And I pray that we would take them to heart, that we would live this out, that we would be faithful and diligent. And uh, Lord, I thank you for the redemption you provide um, in life. And when tragedy strikes and hard times fall, Lord, you make a way. And we pray that we can be part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.